Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing Columbus's Civilian Review Board and what they can learn from Cincinnati's similar institution. A former reality star, Josh Duggar, is facing federal child pornography charges and Covenant Eyes, an online software that monitors individuals' use of the internet is a key aspect of the case. Last but not least, we'll be looking at the charges filed against eight people in relation to the hazing death of Stone Foltz. In segment two, we'll be talking about part three of our closer look at field sobriety tests by looking at the walk-in term test. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that Columbus is now looking to Cincinnati for guidance on putting together and running their civilian review board? I mean, that is so exciting. We were excited about Cincinnati and now we have Columbus coming up and I think it's wonderful. So what is the background of how the Cincinnati Civilian Review Board came about? Cincinnati's version is called the Citizen Complaint Authority and it was established in 2003. And that was the result of a memorandum of agreement between the United States Department of Justice, the city of Cincinnati, the city, uh, the Cincinnati Police Department, and representatives of a class action lawsuit that had brought claims against the Cincinnati uh, Police Department. They all re-entered into an agreement to create the Citizen Complaint Authority. Now, the collaborative agreement involves a community problem-solving oriented approach to policing which includes the principle that problems are dilemmas that need to be engaged and learned from, and that blame is an obstacle to progress. When the CA ended in 2007, the city decided to continue its principles. And in 2017, Cincinnati revisited through an independent contractor, the whole agreement and revamped it, including hiring more investigators. So instead of shutting it down, which under the uh, collaborative agreement they could have done, they decided to expand the program. And now the CAA, receives more than 200 cases a year and averages about 70 investigations per year. Wow, that is impressive. I mean, that really took off. I'm so happy to hear that the numbers of cases that they're reviewing are so large. So how will Columbus's Civilian Review Board differ from Cincinnati's? The CAA is independent of the police department, but it reports to the city manager. This is Cincinnati's version of it. So the ultimate authority to make decisions rests with the city manager based on the CAA's recommendations. Now, in contrast, Columbus's Citizen Review Board will hold full disciplinary authority in itself. Now, the Cincinnati version was created as the result of this civil rights litigation. And in contrast, Columbus's Citizen Review Board was proposed by the mayor and approved by the voters of Franklin County through essentially a referendum. Now, both panels are formed and comprised of candidates that are appointed by the mayor and approved by city council. Both panels have a similar structure, including law enforcement officers, lawyers, and community leaders. And 
both panels have very similar budgets. Cincinnati's about a $900,000 annual budget. Columbus's is gonna have about a million dollar annual budget. So you know, it, they are going to be very similar, but I think what really sets Columbus's apart and really sets it as the precedent for moving forward is that the Citizen Review Board holds disciplinary authority over the police. So it really gives the servants of the public, which is what police are, uh, it, it places them in a, in a position where they are beholden to their superiors, which is the citizen. Wow, so that is quite different. And yeah, I do remember when Cincinnati's came about and it was, as a result of crazy things happening in the news, that is for sure. So they sound like they've got the plan in place. When is this civilian review board expected to begin work? So the members of the review board have been approved by city council and their terms have been staggered out and delineated. The board is still working out some of the details about what types of cases it's going to work. Um, what I'm sorry, what types of cases it's going to accept. Um, who their inspectors are going to be, and, and the other minutiae of actually running the board itself. Now, they're going to receive initial and ongoing training on police tactics, constitutional law, de-escalation tactics, implicit bias, and a variety of other subjects. So they've got to get up to speed. Many of them have some of this knowledge already, but we've got to get the entire panel up on the same level of understanding of you know, police obligations and, and knowledge of police tactics. You know, there's no fixed date right now, but everybody is pushing for swift action and looking at early 2022 to uh, start examining cases. Well, I'm really excited for them. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about what they review and how it goes, because I think that this can only make the playing field much more level. Well, I think you're right, Erica, that it's going to put police in their proper place. And that is on equal footing with all of the other people and have the appropriate oversight over police, which is the people having oversight over their servants, their public servants. In other news this week, Erica, did you see the story about Josh Duggar, the former reality TV star, and the new federal porn, child pornography charges that he is facing. Yes, I did. And I remember how shocking it was to the public when he was arrested two years ago. And I really haven't heard anything since. So maybe for myself and for everyone listening and watching, you could go over what happened in this case. As of right now, Josh Duggar is charged with one count of possession of child pornography and one count of receipt of child pornography. Now that may sound like the same thing, but they are federal, they're separate federal offenses. Possession doesn't require intent, and a person could be in possession of child pornography simply because it's embedded in another downloaded file or in some other manner arriving on their computer. Receipt of child pornography includes the intentional pursuit of the contraband and some sort of exchange of consideration for some item of value, typically other contraband or something of the like. Now, a first-time offender charged with a possession offense would have no mandatory prison time. 
but faces up to 10 years in prison and up to 20 years if the victim of the child pornography is under the age of 12. Now, in this case, because the FBI has released an announcement saying that Josh Duggar is facing up to 20 years on both counts, we can assume that the alleged victim, the alleged person in the child pornography that he allegedly possessed was under the age of 12 years old. Now, again, a first-time offender charged with receiving child pornography, this is a mandatory five-year prison term and a maximum term of up to 20 years. Now, the thing about federal court, though, Erica, is that these charges, and the, I'm sorry, the, the consequences for being convicted of these charges can change drastically based on the background of the accused. And his penalties could go up significantly based on prior criminal history or even uncharged conduct that law enforcement can prove by preponderance of the evidence was in existence prior to his sentencing date. Now, both charges also have mandatory fees and fines up to $250,000. Wow. I mean, it's quite disappointing to hear these charges. If they're true, it's, you know, it's really something you don't want to hear, <laughs> but he has a defense and he has a defense attorney that's helping him through this strategically. Hey, that's great information that you gave us. And it's really a good review of what's going on with that case. Um, when I was reading up on this, though, I, I saw something interesting that I've never seen before. And it was some sort of software called Covenant Eyes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Erica. So Covenant Eyes is accountability software. And it was created to assist individuals who suffer from uh, addictions or obsessions with um, internet-based activity, most frequently sexting, pornography addictions, things of that nature. Uh, when it's downloaded to a device, Covenant Eyes works by periodically and randomly taking screenshots of the material on the screen of the device in use, and it sends those screenshots to an accountability partner. Now, the software also tracks what websites you're on and is a keyword is is a keystroke logger so it can also identify what searches the person using the device is running and it sends that information to the accountability partner as well so somebody that's going to keep uh, the user honest uh, and on the straight and narrow about what they are allowed and what they are not allowed to be using now the software became relevant in this case because it was identified on Duggar's computer. The FBI found that Duggar had created a password protected network um, and that his laptop had been partitioned. I'm sorry, Covenant Eyes was prevented from accessing the partition. So he essentially was able to circumvent Covenant Eyes and use the internet and use his device in an illicit manner. Um, and this kind of is really problematic for Duggar because what it looks like is that he's, in, he's engaging in active efforts to avoid detection. 
And it really leads to the inference that he knew that there was a crime being committed. Now, of course, the FBI, law enforcement, and federal prosecutors are going to have to prove that this software was in existence on his computer, that it was being used, that Duggar knew it was there, and that Duggar actively circumvented it. But if they can prove those elements, boy, does Duggar have some serious problems moving forward in this case. I mean, it sounds like it. it if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it may just be a duck in this case. Is this a software that law enforcement uses typically? It's, it's really not software that the police would use. Um, it is like any other software that you put on your computer, your phone, your tablet, subject to subpoena requests, warrant requests for the data that it collects. But typically these sorts of third-party accountability programs are used um, in, in cases of infidelity between partners. Um, maybe a parent is concerned about their child's internet use and maybe excessive viewing of pornography, so they put it on their child's computer. And it's also used in the cases of people who are on probation, parole, some sort of supervised release from the government, and the government will install this compute this device on your computer from a parole or probation officer standpoint. Now, what we see in, in our cases, we have often been able to use this in, in the situation of a recalcitrant user, uh, observer of child pornography. You know, the reality is, is that people who uh, delve into those dark holes of the internet, really feel bad about it, but they become obsessed, they become addicted, and they don't know how to break that cycle. And so we're able to install Covenant Eyes, match them up with an accountability partner, and really break that habit, um, you know, and, and get them set on a pro-social path and get them away from that antisocial behavior. So we in our office have used this program to help our clients both avoid charges and get reduced consequences for charges that were likely to be proven. Now, this is the situation where Covenant Eyes is most frequently used. It's outside of a law enforcement context. You know, we're talking parents, therapists, sometimes faith-based treatment and support groups like Sex Addicts Anonymous and things of that nature. Law enforcement really doesn't have the opportunity to impose this on people, but law enforcement is always looking for new and creative ways to dig into your digital privacy and extract evidence to use against you. Well, and I, I think this is a great example that just shows how much your law firm cares because you do take a holistic approach. You often talk about that. And I feel like this is one of the many examples of how you want to help heal somebody, not just go to court fix one problem. You want these people to have a wonderful life later on and fix what's wrong with them, which, you know, unfortunately, going through the court systems, they don't always consider that and, and really try to heal the person later because you know, the problem is just like having any other addiction. That's exactly right, Erica. Uh, pornography addiction, sex addiction, any sort of paraphilia is very similar to drug, alcohol, and other addictive behaviors in the sense that treatment and the development of coping mechanisms can cause people 
to stop engaging in the antisocial behavior. And you're right also in that we take a very serious look at what options are there for therapy and coping mechanisms. And we make it a point to, to provide those options to our clients. Because in my opinion, Erica, the, the most successful cases that I'm involved in are the ones not just where my client gets a, an, a result that they find to be acceptable and satisfactory, but where my client becomes a better person as the result of our representation. And I think that's really what makes you stand out from the rest, that and the fantastic results that you get in the courtroom. In other news of people that absolutely need some holistic help in their lives, Erica, did you see in the news this week that eight young adults have been charged in the hazing death of Stone Foltz, who died of alcohol intoxication after a fraternity party at Bowling Green State University? Yes, I did hear about that. And it's deeply disturbing that they will still have, that they would still have hazing like this. Alcohol poisoning is such a dangerous situation. I remember my freshman year, somebody left the freshman dorm with that same issue and you know, an ambulance was called and luckily he recovered and you know, just really shows that uh, even today, like this is 20 years later, I still can't believe we hear about this with all of the situations like that that happen. There's no way you've been out of college for 20 years, Erica. I don't believe it. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> it's the lighting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so maybe you could tell us what happened in this particular situation. Well, members of fraternity, I mean, it's a story as old as American colleges, right? Uh, fraternity party having an initiation ceremony. Uh, initiates were each provided with a bottle of liquor and ordered to drink the entire bottle before the end of the night. Stone Foltz attended this party as an initiate and drank an excessive amount of alcohol and was later found unconscious by his roommates and died of alcohol poisoning later. Uh, after the incident, members of the fraternity are alleged to have destroyed evidence in an attempt to cover up their involvement in Stone's passing. I mean, that sounds very damning. All of that information sounds terrible. So everyone has a right to either drink or not to drink, right? So is hazing actually a crime? Yes, uh, the Ohio legislature is actually on the cutting edge of educational law in this area. Back in 1983, the Ohio General Assembly defined hazing as any act or coercion of another person, including the victim, to do any act of initiation into any student or other organization that causes or creates a substantial risk of causing mental or physical harm to any person. Now, the statute has a recklessness mental state which means that the person is reckless with respect to their circumstances when they act with heedless indifference to consequences and disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that this may happen. An accusation of hazing is a misdemeanor of the fourth degree. It's a very low level offense, Erica, 
um, for behavior that can have obviously life-altering consequences. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's sad that really the pit of this is that someone joining college wants to just belong and they want to belong to that group and they want that camaraderie. And you would think that there were easier ways to earn that than having to go through these crazy rituals. So can the accused in this case be sued civilly for the role in the death? Yes. So anybody who is a victim of hazing as defined by the revised code can file a suit for civil damages, including pain and suffering against any of the participants, against the organization or its officers, against the educational institution or any of its administrators, and any agent of the educational institution um, could be found individually liable uh, if they permitted or allowed or, uh, you know, participated, God forbid, in the hazing itself. Um, now, thing is, it's the statute specifically eliminates things like assumption of the risk for the plaintiff, the person who you know, is, is the victim of the hazing. So just because they voluntarily participated in it doesn't create a defense to liability. But it also provides an affirmative defense for the educational institution. So all of those administrators, all of the higher ups, you know, all the all the people with all the power in the institution, get absolute immunity if they can prove that they were actively enforcing a policy against hazing at the time that the incident occurred. Now, this statute, as we said, has been in, in place since 1983. And the very interesting thing about this particular statute is that while the Ohio Revised Code allows for a civil suit for any criminal wrong, this particular criminal statute includes the specific con conditions and opportunities for the civil suit that comes along with it. So I think when the General Assembly adopted this, it made it such a low level offense because let's be honest, some hazing incidents can be resulting in, in very minor harm while some hazing incidents, as we see with the case of Stone Fultz, can have life-ending consequences. So the legislature really gave a variety of options for the victims of this sort of behavior to receive recompense. I mean, that makes sense. It's such a tragedy when it happens. And if the rule has been, if the law has been around that long, then I'm sure they all knew about it. So what are the other criminal charges that the accused will face? So that's what really came to light this week is that the seven students and, and one non-BGSU student have been charged with an array of very serious offenses ranging from felony one and felony three involuntary manslaughter, felonious assault, reckless homicide, of course the hazing charges, and obstructing official business, as well as failure to comply with the underage alcohol laws. So these individuals are facing very serious criminal charges um, and it, you know, more lives altered because of uh, this behavior. Well, thanks for explaining that. And you know, I, I just hope that there's a lesson to be learned here and 
that we don't hear about situations like this in the future because it just seems like a needless loss. It, it absolutely is a needless loss. And the reality is, is that this happens on college campuses across the nation, probably on a weekly basis. And I think the only way that this sort of behavior is, is going to stop and, and really the tragic results of this sort of behavior is actually to lower the drinking age to 18 years of age. And here's my logic behind that, Erica. These individuals, again, note that they were charged with underage alcohol consumption, furnishing alcohol to minors or furnishing alcohol to people under the age of 21. The, the alcohol age being 21 divides this peer group into two groups, a group that can consume alcohol and a group that has to hide their consumption of alcohol. Because let's be honest, college students are going to drink. People who are over the age of 18 are likely to attempt to drink. Now, if you drop the alcohol consumption age to, 20, to 18 from 21 with some conditions, then these individuals who find themselves or find their friends in a dangerous alcohol situation can feel comfortable coming forward and saying, my friend is sick, I provided them this much alcohol, help them. So that kids don't feel like they have to hide that and avoid uh, you know, try to avoid what is relatively minor charge and then end up with these sorts of situations. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I hope that this will be the last story of this type that we talk about on the show. Well, and the other thing that I would tell parents out there is this, is that you've got to educate your children about the dangers of, ex of excessive drinking. You have to accept the reality that at some point they're going, you know, baby bird is going to leave the nest and they have to be prepared for the big bad world out there. And you can't shield them from it. So having these discussions very early on in the process and the dangers that are out there is, is critically important. And another topic that I think parents and, and everybody needs to understand and be educated about is field sobriety tests, which is why we are almost done with our five-part series on field sobriety tests with our look at the walk and turn test this week. So Erica, let's move into segment two and talk about field sobriety tests and in particular, the walk and turn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to hear more about the nitty gritty of this topic. We've all seen it. Certainly we could probably guess what it is. Uh, people walk down and they walk back and there's been plenty of comedy sketches on this as well on YouTube, <laughs> but um, why don't you tell us exactly what the walk and turn test is? Well, Erica, I think my favorite comedy sketch about this is the clip from Reno 911. And we will make sure that on our podcast, we link that clip um, to its YouTube page uh, in the description of today's podcast. Uh, that clip, uh, that example of the walk and turn test is absolutely classic, but that's not how you do the walk and turn test. The appropriate way to do the walk and turn test is for the driver to take nine heel to toe steps on either a real or imaginary line. And then at the end of those nine steps, take a series of small steps to turn themselves around while keeping one foot planted and then nine heel to toe steps back down the line. Now, throughout this entire process, the driver has to leave their arms at their side. 
They have to count their steps out loud and they can't stop until the test is completed. Now, what's really interesting about this test and the reason that this test among all three tests is rigged for you to fail is because the officer is not just observing your execution of the test itself, but rather also observing and counting clues against you while he or she is explaining the test to you. So the first phase is during, the first time they're looking to impose clues upon you or you know, show that you're impaired is while they're telling you about the test. And then the second is while you're actually doing the test. Wow, I mean, I'm learning something new today for sure. And I can't wait to hear more about what these clues are. I had no idea that while they were giving you instructions that they were starting to take a look at things. So what are these clues? So the officer is looking for a total of eight clues. The first two in the instruction phase and the remaining six during the walking phase. Now, the first thing the officer is going to do, and they're going to fly by this little aspect, but this critical piece of the walk and turn test is they're going to say, put one foot on the imaginary line and put your other foot heel to toe with that and strap your arms to the side of your body. Put your arms at your side. Stay in that position until I'm done giving you instructions. And they're going to fly through that especially that stay in that position until I'm done giving you instructions. Now, typically when you're having a conversation with a person or they're telling you how to perform a test, you're gonna stand like a normal person with your hands at a reasonable distance from your body and your legs you know, about shoulder width apart. But that's where they've already got you. Because if you move out of that starting position, you've committed two violations in the walk and turn test and you have failed the test already because you have lost your balance and you have started the test too soon. And they will count that against you, they will hold that against you, and they will arrest you for OVI because you behave like a normal person would talking to another human being. Now, during the walking phase, the officer will look to see if there is even the tiniest little gap in between your feet as you're walking heel to toe. If you take the smallest pause as you're going down the line, that'll be counted as a clue. If you don't turn in the exact way the officer wants you to with a series of small steps rather than a step and pivot or some other type of turn, that's gonna get you. If your arms come more than four, five, maybe six inches away from your body, that's gonna be a turn. If you take more or less than nine steps, that's gonna be a clue as well. And if you don't count your steps out loud, even though it's not a listed clue in the NHTSA manual, by God, you know they're gonna tag you for it. Wow, I had no idea. All of this information hardly seems fair. It seems like they're, again, playing a game without telling you the rules first. By one, count that I did of all of the instructions for the walk and turn test alone, there are 29 individual facts that you have to remember from the time the officer starts 
giving you the instructions until you conclude the test. And what if you're just not good at remembering? I mean, I can never remember somebody's name on the first time I hear it. And I'm sure when there are, in, I know I shouldn't admit that, <laughs> but I am sure that when you're given instructions and it's the first time you've ever done this particular activity, you may need to hear it more than once or see it in writing even. People learn different ways. No, Erica, you're exactly right. You know, people that have things like attention deficit disorder, memory and recall, memory recall and retention issues, um, even mental health conditions like anxiety or you know, fear of the, the cars whizzing by you as you stand on the side of the road can affect your ability to remember these 29 individual aspects of the test that you have to remember and execute perfectly in order to quote unquote pass. The, the manual, the NHTSA manual, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration admits that this test is only 66% accurate in predicting whether somebody is over or under the legal limit. And it says that this test isn't appropriate on uneven roadways, slick roadways, um, roadways that have significant amounts of debris, when the driver has a physical condition such as being overweight or is wearing uh, footwear that has a, a, a high heel, like, a, like even cowboy boots or some shoes that have significant heels. Certainly you don't wanna be performing it in, in actual stiletto heels but officers don't seem to care. The officer gives you the choice. Ma'am, you can take off your high-heeled shoes and conduct this test barefoot on the side of the road, or I'm going to say you refused the test. There is no in-between for that. Now, there are a variety of other conditions that can cause you to lose your balance, you know, that have absolutely nothing to do with alcohol intoxication, neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis or a history of strokes, diabetes, which can frequently result in nerve damage, vertigo, postural hypotension, foot, leg, hip, knee issues, leg length discrepancy, collapsed arches, flat feet, previous head injuries, concussions, traumatic brain injuries, all of which throw off your balance and your ability to perform these fine motor skills that are required to execute the test. So you may have an intellectual disability that causes you to fail the test. You may have a physical disability that causes you to fail the test, none of which has anything to do with alcohol consumption, but all of which will be used against you and focused into a claim that you were drunk driving. The officer's scoring of the test can be suspect at times. And it's important to note that these tests are used to support probable cause and used as an element to prove guilt at trial. You know, the only real way to show if somebody is under the influence of drugs or alcohol is a properly conducted blood draw and analysis. And these tests are a losing game for anybody that goes and tries to do them on the side of the road. Wow. So it sounds like there are a lot of places where you can challenge the walk and turn test. And 
this is really where having an attorney on your side that is familiar, beyond familiar with these tests. And obviously, you know, the insides, the outsides of what's going on, what the officers are looking for so that you can punch holes in their case, which are, which is completely fair with how unfair the test seems to be. I mean, this is a perfect time to say that it's uneven ground, right? <laughs> Ever tried to walk barefoot on the wet pavement or something? <laughs> it's, you're not going to do a good job going heel to toe, that is for sure. I can't do that right now. I know that I can't. Uh, and have you ever been on a road that isn't covered in gravel? I mean, you step on, you know, the classic, the internet meme is the most deadly thing in a house with a child is a Lego that you might step on with a bare foot. You know, it's, it's equally as bad stepping on a pebble with a bare foot. It's painful. And you're certainly oh, yeah. not going to succeed in passing the test at that point. It's so true. I mean, like, I know when I used to go camping with my Nana and Gramps, yeah, I would see people, you know, they camp all year and they walk around barefoot and they've built up their souls. I never got to that point. And, <laughs> and I know that I would be at a severe disadvantage that with the, you know, flat feet and I could certainly lose a few pounds. So I just, I would definitely be in a lot of trouble and I, and I know that I'm not alone. So um, I hope that if people do get pulled over, that they give you a call if they're in your area, because it's an amazing situation to get into. And people don't think about how it can affect their lives later on, where they could lose their jobs, um, have the inability to get jobs. They might go through a divorce. I mean, there's just some lose right to see their children. I mean, there's so many horrible things that can happen um, with a criminal charge that could have been avoided if you had the right attorney. So I, I know I kind of go on with that, but I do, I really do believe in that. So in your opinion, do you think that a detained individual should take this walk and turn test? Absolutely not. A, a detained driver should never voluntarily submit to field sobriety tests because they're not going to ever result in you being released from the road type, roadside detention and getting arrested. The reality is at the point that you've been pulled out of your car, the officer has 90% sure already made their decision that you are being arrested for OVI. If you perform these balance and coordination tests, if you do their roadside song and dance, it's just more evidence against you that shows that that firms up their predisposition, their prejudiced belief that you are intoxicated. Balance issues, short-term memory issues, all sorts of physical and mental disabilities cause everybody to make mistakes every day during the course of their lives. When you add in the heightened anxiety of interacting with a police officer, you are almost guaranteed to fail this test. Recall and you know, go and look at the, the videos of even sober police officers in their trainings failing this test over and over again. Just because you refuse this test doesn't make you guilty of an OVI. It makes you smart. And in my opinion, it demonstrates that you are acting and 
analyzing your situation with the mind of a sober person. This is why we say no walk, no talk, no blow. Because the roadside field sobriety tests are a rigged game that you are not going to win. Well, I mean, it sounds like it. And I appreciate that you are taking the time to really let the public know about this. You've obviously done a ton of research. I know that you take classes all the time to keep up on what's new and what's happening in the law right now so that you can best help your clients with the right strategy to give them the best outcome. And, you know, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on here and and telling us about this every week, because I don't think that any of these facts are widely known. Well, I thank you for saying that, Erica, and, and thank you for having these discussions with me. It wouldn't be possible without you. And to everybody who's listened to our show today in the past and intends to listen to it in the future, thank you as well. And please spread the word about this knowledge and the source of knowledge that is the Sui Generous Show. In order to stay informed about the latest in civilian review boards, police, government accountability, roadside balance and coordination tests, and everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, look to the law office of brianjones.com. Go to facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense or find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. We'll be back next week with a sui generous perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as part four of our deep dive into the field sobriety tests with a look at the one-legged stand test. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, hey kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.